Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose entries it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Langholz, Senior Director for Policy and Program at ACS. This week has been a very newsy and noisy week. It has been easy to let stories fall off the radar as there's just so much to be following. Today on Broken Law, we're going to focus in on a case you have heard about on this podcast before, but may not have realized was before the Supreme Court for oral arguments the day after Election Day. Brickeen versus Holland is too important to let it get lost in the midterm shuffle, and we are so delighted to have Professor Matthew Fletcher with us to break it all down for us. Professor Fletcher is the Harry Burns Hutchins Collegiate Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. He teaches and writes in the areas of federal Indian law, American Indian tribal law, Anishinaabe legal and political philosophy, constitutional law, federal courts, and legal ethics. Professor, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. Oh, we're so delighted to have you. I want to start with basics for those who maybe haven't caught the podcast before or just need a refresher. What is at issue in Burkine? What is before the court in this case? There's a facial challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's a statute is uh, from 1978. Um, It's been kicking around for more than four decades. And a few years back, in this case, for the first time ever, a court concluded that it was unconstitutional on its face. So there are thousands and thousands of cases under the Indian Child Welfare Act, almost all of them in state court. And so for the first time, if federal court takes a case like this, it declares it unconstitutional. It's a bit jarring, but that's where we are. And ICWA, would you help us understand kind of the context in which it came out? Why did Congress decide to pass this law? What motivated the passage? ICWA is a civil rights remedial statute designed to slow down and prevent the breakup of American Indian families. As of the mid-70s, there were lots of studies showing that about one-third of all Native children in the entire country had been removed from their biological relatives, and almost all of them placed with non-Indians. Congress also found that when that happened, it was informal. There were very rarely court proceedings. There was a lot of coercion by state and religious and nonprofit agencies. And you know what, the court, what Congress actually said was that it was a wholesale removal, that Some states like South Dakota passed regulations saying, or adopted regulations saying that if you were an Indian child living in an Indian country, you were by definition a child in need of care that it could remove at any time at its will. And they did. Wow. I know that there have been cases that have come before the court that have dealt with this issue of adoption before. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind briefly describing adoptive couple, because that came up during arguments as well, right? It sure did. So this is the third time the Indian Child Welfare Act has come up to the Supreme Court. The first two were just sort of statutory interpretation cases. Most recently in 2013, the Supreme Court decided a case called adoptive couple versus baby girl. And the question there is somewhat similar to this one, but a little bit different. So that one was about a permissive adoption, meaning an Indian child was born and a non-Indian family wanted to adopt and a the biological father who was a Cherokee Nation member objected. And the Supreme Court five to four held that ICWA did not apply to that adoption because the father who was estranged from, the biological father was estranged from the biological mother, never formed a family. And the bio dad in that case 
didn't ever see the child, partly because uh, he was not allowed to, and partly because he was deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. I forget which one. Makes it tough. Yeah, it does. So the court in that case, majority opinion was written by Justice Alito, and it basically opens up with a condemnation of everything about Indian law, that uh, there was reference to the child's blood quantum, which is irrelevant. Either the child is a member of a tribe or not. There's also reference to something that really disturbed me, which is this notion that adoptive couple in that case was the, quote, only family this child had ever known. And when that was written and published, that child had been living with her biological dad and grandparents for well over a year, close to two years. And to say only one family mattered, the white family over the Indian family, really says it all about the adoptive couple case. And I guess Justice Lito's vision or views of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's adoptive couple. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it came up several times in an oral argument. And it was one of those that I had to go back to and, and refresh myself. So thank you for that to, to remind everybody. I'm curious, who are the parties before the court? What are they asking? And at least to me, it struck me as plaintiffs in this case kind of went back to that same well of, you know, oh, this bond that's been created with the family who are at issue here are also white. It, it, it struck a lot of the same notes to me, but I'm curious if you had the same reaction. Yeah, that's really the argument in this case. So this case is about three foster couples. They were foster parents. They were fostering Indian children. It's also about the state of Texas, which is a totally separate issue. Um, they're merged a lot in a lot of ways because they're consolidated cases. But the, the foster parents are all foster parents who are fostering Native children in instances of neglect where there were Indian parents, custodians who were neglectful and had their children removed by the state, two of them by the state of Texas, one by the state of Minnesota. So what happens in, in this kind of situation where, you know, there's a, a removal because of neglect and a foster family situation, you know, the, the family, the biological relatives, Ten, you know, they've lost custody of those that child, those children, and the um, foster families in this case went into the foster care system with an eye towards finding children for adoption. So the lead plaintiffs in this case actually had fostered a couple of other Indian kids, and they didn't like those kids, so they dropped them. They sent them back to the state. And this third kid uh, is the one that that subject in this case, they wanted to keep that one. Mm -hmm. That one also had a half sibling that we'll talk about briefly. So they're fostering these children. And then eventually, sometimes like a year later or longer, the state or somebody will move to terminate the parental rights of the biological parents. So they've been fostering these kiddos for quite a while. Now, the, the goal of any foster care system, even Texas, is to reunify the bio parents with their children. And we know as a practical matter in Texas, the foster care system, that is a massive, horrific failure. The Texas's foster care system is among the worst. That doesn't mean the Brad Keynes are bad foster parents. So it's not going to happen. That's why these people who are interested in adopting children tend to go toward the foster care system as a means of finding the market effectively. So when you get to the point where the state, after a lengthy months, sometimes years, period of time uh, to terminate parental rights, that's when they say, we've bonded with these children. That's where they can make this horrible argument that we are the only family these children have ever known. 
many times, not always. Sometimes the kids remember their bio parents and that's a different story. Then you have this termination hearing and eventually you have a often in these cases, a contested adoption hearing where biological relatives of the child who have been waiting in the wings, hoping for reunification, seeing that it's going to fail, finally are willing or not willing at that time, but always willing, but finally have the opportunity to say, well, we want to adopt those children too. So it's a fight in court between white families and Indian families in this case, all three of these cases to determine who gets to adopt the child. And that is some of the nastiest fighting you will ever see in court. It is so awful. In these cases, if you listen to this, the This Land podcast and read Rebecca Nagel's work in The Nation and other places. Which you should for sure. Absolutely. She published an article about one of the plaintiffs on The Nation the day of argument. What they did was they just trashed the hell out of an Indian families. And the arguments are always the same. They're poor. Their relatives are the people that are neglectful in the first place. You are you're you're basically because you're you're less wealthy and less privileged than the white or the non-Indian adoptive couples or adoptive, uh, you know, the foster family. You know that that this is the kind of thing. It's in the best interests of the child to stay with the family that they've been with, and these fights are fundamentally about white families trying to take away children from their biological relatives. All the data, all the empirical studies show it's best for children to stay with their kin, to stay with their biological relationships, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with tribes. It's just that that's the best thing to do. And these are people who don't care about that. They want their children. They want these foster children to stay with them. And so that's those are the plaintiffs here in this case. And so when the other side talks about bonding, that's the only real argument they have, because all other evidence to the other side suggests that it's best for children to stay with their biological relatives. I know that if it was me and my kids, I'd want them to go with my mother or my mother-in-law or my brother, some of my cousins even. And it's better, so much better for them to remain in their biological relationships. You mentioned the half-sibling that I want to give you a chance to circle back to and talk a little bit about that, if you would like, and, and the relationship here to the family. Yeah. So the the, the three foster families, have those, those adoption proceedings have all concluded. And this is a key element, an element to the case that seems to be ignored, which is there's no case here. None of these cases are live. Yeah. But there is a half-sibling that is in a separate proceeding. And again, I'm going to draw from Rebecca Nagel's reporting The Brackeens found that there was a half sibling in the foster care system of the child that they want that is at issue in this case. And without ever having met that child, they insisted that they get under in the Texas appellate court or the Texas system that they have custody of that child, too. So that was contested by the Navajo Nation. So the Texas Court of Appeals held that, um, or the Texas courts held that there should be primary custody with the Brackeens. So they effectively won, but they have to share custody with um, grandparent uh, or other relatives on the Navajo reservation. So they have an obligation to return to the under Texas law to the Navajo reservation. Again, this really doesn't have anything to do with the Indian Child Welfare Act. I mean, it probably would be the same outcome under Texas state law because they are biological relatives. But, you know, the characterization is really quite awful. So that case is in, in te- technically in the Texas Supreme Court because Navajo appealed it. And so it's probably being held at this point, waiting, uh, pending the Supreme Court decision. 
But that's the only live adoption, and it's not part of the U.S. Supreme Court case. And, you know, we saw during oral arguments, or heard for those of us at home, that this issue of mootness came up. I I remember Justice Gorsuch bringing up, you know, what is actually an issue here? What is the standing? Were you heartened by at least a few of the justices seeing through the procedural background here, or, or is it still very much at play? I'm curious what your impressions were after arguments. Well, you know, the best case scenario in this case always was after the Fifth Circuit issued its split opinion that the court would just summarily reverse and say, hey, there's no case here. You have to dismiss this thing. Um, and they did the fact that they didn't do that, which is, is a pie in the sky argument, indicates to me that they, as the majority of this court, does not care about the fact that this is a moot case. They don't care about standing. This is the same court that just last term decided to adjudge a, a, a federal environmental regulation that had been withdrawn by the federal agency. That was no longer a live regulation and was a zombie regulation. It was dead. And they decided yeah. to pass on that one anyway. So none of this is going to matter. Justice Thomas even opened the argument, you know, asking the Brackeen's attorney about standing, you know, and I think he was just going to give them an opportunity to tell us, to, you know, to say on the record why they thought they had standing. But um, so I'd be a little bit cynical. I think the best line on that question, I think, came from Justice Kagan. I could be wrong on that, which was a quote from one of the judges in the Fifth Circuit who said, this is a law review article. You know, you <laughs> could write all you want, but it's an advisory opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not going to inv- impact anything. You know, states can continue to apply ICWA, even, af- even if the Supreme Court says it commandeers the states or, you know, that somehow Congress doesn't have the power to do this. You know, the states can do it. Ten states have already adopted ICWA, and a, a probably another 20 or 15 or 20 could fairly easily do so in the next 10 years. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. So, yeah. you know, we you know with this just as an aside, this court seems to be happy with creating credibly fragmented law, like depending law is going to apply depending which state you live in. And yeah, I don't know if they are trying to just break up part the country or what, but every <laughs> it, it, little thing they seem to be doing is going in that direction. I know, right? It's been this incredible uh, polarization among the states. Your 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 rights, your laws really are dictated by zip code more and more. I'm curious what your overall impression was. You know, Justice Gorsuch has historically been very good on Indian law issues, seems to have a good grasp of the not only issues, but systems in play, certainly compared to, you know, previous justices, and even some of those on the court. What were your impressions of his line of questioning and any movement that he's making among his conservative colleagues on other issues? Or how did you take his questions? Well, the thing about Justice Gorsuch, and I've been trying to unravel what it is about him and why he's so generally supportive of tribal interests. And a couple of things that, you know, as, I, as I, I've watched the argu- argument, I've seen him uh, write in the last several years. And so he is the first, I think what it is, he is the first justice to come out of the West, out of the federal circuits in the self-determination era. And what I mean by that is he is actually seen on the ground uh, as a dep- federal appellate judge. He's not really on the ground. Instead of 35,000 feet, they're at 25,000 feet, <laughs> but still. He's seeing tribes behave. He's seen what it's like for a tribal government to exercise jurisdiction over lands, civil and criminal, you know, in a way that is, isn't scary. So the previous justices from the West, justices like Rehnquist and O'Connor, Wizard White, 
they came from the West and they knew stuff about Indian country, but all they knew were tribes that were weak, independent, powerless, uh, weren't doing much, were under the thumb of the federal government, were under the thumb of the states. And then when those tribes tried to exercise jurisdiction, they acted sometimes as if the sky was falling, like the American democratic polity would suddenly use up, up, go upside down. Indians would suddenly get all the lands back and we'd be under the thumb of tribal governments who are not constrained by the constitution. Justice Kennedy out of California was quite possibly the very worst purveyor of this view. But Justice Gorsuch, he's from the West and he's seen tribes for 20 years, you know, do all the things that used to terrify the Supreme Court and guess what? There's still a state of California. There's still a state of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. It's not scary. And the other thing that's great about him is that he's a, you know, he's a textualist. And in a lot of other contexts, that sounds really bad. But in Indian law, we always want a textualist. Because really what Indian law is, more so than a corpus of a bunch of statutes and cases and treaties, it's a methodology. There are default interpretive rules rooted in the Constitution and the separation of powers between Congress and the judiciary that forced the judiciary to defer to Congress. That's the whole point of Indian law. It's the same is true under the war powers, dealing with foreign affairs, mm -hmm. all the stuff, the plenary power that Congress has, like interstate commerce, that you know the Supreme Court is supposed to defer to Congress on. And there's still this horrible legacy. It is horrible of the court all the way up into the 90s and 80s being afraid of tribal governments. If you look at the, the thread of their line of argumentation and oral argument and the way they write about tribal governments, or wrote about tribal governments, was that these were entities that were threats to the United States. And Gorsuch sees that they are not. And what I hope he's able to do is to go to his colleagues and say, hey, he, here's what really happens when a tribe has jurisdiction over something. Here's what really happens on the ground when, you know, a, a, a tribe intervenes in a case or an Indian child is raised in their own community. It's not going to be the end of the United States. It's no threat to anybody. Sitting to his right at oral argument was one of the newer justices, Justice Barrett, who kept asking the question, how does this work on the ground? And, you know, I've already told you my view of how it works on the ground. These cases are about, you know, white families telling the court that Indian families are no good. Mm -hmm. You know, these kinds of things, family law cases are often closed. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard for anybody, even in any other areas of Indian law, to explain what's really going on on the ground to the Supreme Court. They're not there. And even the attorneys arguing these cases, they're not there. They yeah. spend a lot of time at argument saying, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't practice family law in Indian country. So it's really frustrating. I hope he's able to, um, and his clerks are able to delve into the research on ICWA and go to the rest of the court and say, ICWA is actually a really good thing. You know, 23 states signed on to the amicus brief. You know, the only people, almost all the states, including Texas's own social services agency, has written extensively about how good ICWA is, how they want to enforce it. They want to apply it better. They were in support of the Interior Department of Regulations in 2016. That's the kind of thing I would love for Justice Gorsuch's chambers to be spreading around the court right about now. You're listening to Broken Law. We hope you're enjoying our weekly episodes about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a member of the American Constitution Society today. We are the nation's foremost progressive legal organization, 
and are committed to diversifying the federal bench, reforming the U.S. Supreme Court, and transforming our laws and legal systems so that they protect the lives of all people. When you become an ACS member, you empower our work. Our more than 250 lawyer and student chapters across the country, and you support broken law. Become an ACS member today by going to acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about the argument that came up. You know, one of the claims that plaintiffs has brought is that this is an equal protection problem. Um, the ICWA violates equal protection because it makes classifications based on what they're describing as race. And you wrote a really great amicus brief on this question and particularly about political classification. And so I was hoping you wouldn't mind explaining, um, I don't mean for you to have to read the whole brief, uh, but just to to (laughs) explain a little bit about the the difference here and the nuance, uh, because it's it's really one of the key questions, but I think it can be confusing to those who aren't as familiar with the concepts behind Indian law. Yeah, this is such a frustrating argument because it all the media wants to talk about it's great clickbait oh there's this statute that discriminates against white people let's take a look at it it's so patently false it's the epitome of gaslighting it's everything about indian law so one of the questions from i think it was probably justices justice alito or perhaps kavanaugh asked the question we couldn't pass a statute or pass a constitutional must that would pass constitutional muster that says that white foster children have to be adopted by white adoptive couples or black and black and African-American or, you know, Latino and Latino. So of course that's true, but number one, Indians are different. This is the only area of law that, uh, of only ethnicity that Congress has jurisdiction over. There's a special relationship between tribes in the United States. All of the land we're on came from Indian tribes, though in exchange for the sale of that land and all the resources on that land, and in fact, the vast majority of the wealth of the United States, what did Indian tribes get in exchange for that? Virtually nothing. So there's this thing called the duty of protection, which we usually call the trust responsibility, that is authorization for Congress to legislate in the field of Indian affairs. And it's also an obligation on Congress to protect Indian people and Indian tribes. The Constitution itself, by noting powers in Indian commerce, by uh, through the Supremacy Clause and the Treaty Power and the, te- and the Property Clause, is a reflection of that theory of the duty of protection. It's rooted in the constitutional structure. So in the amicus brief, which is really based on a law review article I wrote in the California Law Review a few years ago, is basically saying, look, this all of those things are true. If for some reason ICWA creates a racial classification, that's totally constitutional because guess what? The Constitution itself <laughs> created a racial classification. All you originalists that love love to draw back when it's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> it was so frustrating to hear the questions that, you know, I, you know, comparing the conservatives views on equal protection and colorblindness versus the respect for tribal sovereignty without just, I mean, I I thought it was gaslighting without the reference to the text of the constitution. So the rule is really easy. This, you know, Justice Blackman actually wrote the rule out in 1974 in a case called Morton v. Mancary. It's always been the rule in the United States. If Congress passes a law that is in fulfillment of the duty of protection, that law is constitutional, full stop. 
And there were debates on whether or not in oral argument, the government kept saying, well, maybe as long as the rule, as long as there's a rational relationship to the duty of protection, or as long as the action is reasonable, that's fine. You, there are limits on what Congress can do. And uh, this ICWA is well within those limits. You know, the evidence that states were discriminating against Indian people, that states continue to discriminate against Indian people is overwhelming. And the, the ICWA does not flatly prohibit white people from adopting Indian kids. And that's a characterization that shows up in the media all the time. So the, the, the three couples in this case, what, two of them won. Mm -hmm. that white people tend to win these cases. When you are in a state court with overwhelmingly white judges, overwhelmingly privileged judges, they're going to they're gonna go through a best interest analysis that defers to people that look like them and act like them. Indian people generally do not win these cases. And to say that ICWA prohibits that is laughable. Yeah. I want to ask a, a little bit of a separate question. If the court decided to take either part or all of plaintiffs' arguments and, and strike down ICWA as unconstitutional, what impact would that have on tribal sovereignty, on adoptees? What would the fallout be of striking down ICWA? So it depends on what they do. The most likely thing that they do is when they're, they think they're being reasonable when they do this. They've targeted a couple of provisions in ICWA, most notably the third placement preference. That's the phrase that kept coming up in oral argument. So the placement preferences are a list of classifications of people that should get place preference in an adoptive or foster care placement. So tribal members, biological relatives are at the top of the list. Third on the list are other Indian families. So the other side keeps saying things like, well, what if you have a case? Actually, this is a hypothetical that the tribe used, and it's I, I agree with it. What if you have a tribal, like a case that arises in Maine, and the Maine court just plucks uh unrelatedly Indian family from Arizona and sends the child to Arizona. Completely no connection whatsoever to the child's tribe or family or the state of Maine or anything like that. That's that's never happened. That never happens in these cases. And yeah. that's the tribe's argument was basically saying, look, you know, you know, if you could find a case, the other side couldn't find one. He said, mm -hmm. we couldn't find one. The government can't find one. There are no cases like this. That's not even the case at issue in this case. So but that's the hypothetical that the other side is focusing on. And let's say that what the court does, the most reasonable thing, and again, reasonable is relative. The most reasonable thing is for the court to say, Congress can create classifications rooted in tribal membership. So if the classification is purely, this applies to Indians, no definition of Indians, or this applies to Indians because of a certain blood quantum, then those would be unconstitutional. That is the the most reasonable, th most likely thing for the court to do in this case. Now, what would happen in that instance? Well, under ICWA, there wouldn't be much of an impact because mm -hmm. I just gave you the hypothetical. Th these things do not happen, generally speaking, right? The, it's, it's, you know, the state courts do not go around looking for Indians who are not members of federally recognized tribes thousands of miles away. It just doesn't happen. They don't so, have a list of folks that are just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> It's just I, I don't not, think it, not happening. They don't. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's going to have absolutely enormous consequences outside of ICWA. And the first thing to go will be all of Indian country criminal jurisdiction. And the reason for that is that in 1790, the very first Congress passed a law saying 
if a non-Indian commits a crime against an Indian, and that case was trespassing, I mean, it's not much of a crime, then the federal government has jurisdiction. And that jurisdictional hook is the same one we use to this day. The leading federal statutes, the Major Crimes Act, Indian Country Crimes Act, even the Indian Civil Rights Act, which was, which was designed to protect defendants in criminal cases in tribal court, says it applies to Indians. There's no definition in those statutes of who this Indian is. And what the lower courts have has an aside is say there has to be some indicia of uh, Indian ancestry and some governmental recognition of that person as an Indian. So even non-tribal members can be prosecuted. About half of people that are commit prosecuted as Indians are not actually tribal members. So if the Supreme Court throws out federal statutes that create classifications based on Indian status, rooted in blood quantum or rooted in, you know, just the fact that somebody is proven to be an Indian, if those things are unconstitutional, then the public defenders in federal court under the Major Crimes Act indictments are going to have a field day. They're going to gut Indian country criminal jurisdiction. I'm not big fan of over-criminalizing and over-federalizing Indian country crime, but throwing it all away because you want to make a point under the Indian Child Welfare Act is the worst thing that the court could do. Yeah, And that's the reasonable outcome that they're yeah. looking at right here. I hope that they understand that context. And I suspect they don't. It, it feels like such a whiplash because it was not very long ago that we got McGirt, which was a criminal jurisdiction question that actually, you know, really was a, a win in terms of tribal sovereignty and, and particularly the question of jurisdiction over criminal issues. How did we get uh, to this place where, where we're at least considering the idea that the court might completely go the other way and, and, and create this huge whiplash? You know, McGirt was, you know, was the height of, of, of basically between 2014 and 2020. The Supreme Court, it tri- tribal interests had the best run that they've ever had in the history of the Supreme Court. Tribes have won 10 of 14 cases since 2014. You know, the difference, and sadly, is after McGirt, Oklahoma really highlighted the difference because as soon as our RBG died and ACB came on the court, they immediately filed 30, 40 cert petitions saying, here, please reverse McGirt. You just, your court's changed. Yeah. Thank you. You know, which which <laughs> yeah. was embarrassing to the court at, yeah. and to the state yes. of Oklahoma, which doesn't feel shame. But uh, the court, to its credit, did not take any of the cases where the cert petition was overrule McGirt. They took a more narrow case. That was an interesting and contested case. They decided it in a way that I thought violated every single rule about the methodologies of federal Indian law. But in the long run, it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. But here's what the reality is. When this is a court, as you know, and your listeners know, doesn't care about precedent anymore. They've got a window to change American law forever. And they don't know how long that window is. And they're going to take it. When you have a guarantee of five or six votes for anything you want to do in the law, they're going to take it. I don't know that they have the appetite to rewrite federal Indian law by by throwing out the Indian Child Welfare Act. But if they wanted to, they could, because with five votes, you could do anything. Mm-hmm. And this is a court that doesn't seem to care too much about its legitimacy. And, you know, I think my thinking on this case may come down to that being the point. And not, but not about really the, the doctrines or the practicalities of ICWA, but it might come down to the chief justice just wondering, you know, this is a time where, you know, he is the fifth vote. 
And does he want to throw everything out? You know, is this part of an agenda he's been looking for? I, I don't know. But it is the epitome of a case where the court could decide it narrowly. They could decide it correctly. Mm-hmm. Or they could change everything forever. And uh, I don't know that he's he actually has the, the vote this time to make that a reality, unlike in the abortion case where he, he sort of did that half ass thing. He's like, I'm not really trying to change American <laughs> law forever. I just I'm just a judge. So he I'm could just be trying to change it slowly one by one. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. The minimalism of it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, it's it's amazing how many cases we're seeing so quickly that have the same thread of the facts haven't changed. The law hasn't changed. It's just the people who are sitting in those seats have yep. changed. And so we're, we're getting this real wild ride. You know, John Roberts in the past has gone through kind of the, well, I don't want to overdo everything, but we'll, we'll kind of chip away at it and chip away at it. Is there an option available to him to kind of take that path of, I won't completely gut every principle of Indian law, but maybe there's a a smaller version that he could take. Does that exist in this case? It totally does. I mean, we started at the top talking about standing. He could just say, look, there's no standing here. You you might have four votes to throw all of equal away, but he could be that guy to say, I hate equity too, but there's no case here. You know, Texas, weirdly enough, we haven't talked about much about them. They've got an equal protection challenge. Like Texas (laughs) is a person being discriminated on the basis of race. I mean, it's comical. The whole yeah. case is a sham. But yeah. more realistically, there's also the anti-commandeering argument. By the way, I loved just the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, saying, hey, has there, are there any commandeering cases that predate 1992? No, of course not, because the Supreme Court made it up in 1992. I would love to see Federalist 600 from James Madison saying, oh, by the <laughs> way, you can't commandeer the states. Anyway, so this is the thing that uh, ACB was really focusing on, that the there are aspects of ICWA that seem to commandeer the states. I totally disagree. ICWA yeah. creates rights, individual rights for Native families and Indian tribes, and all the state courts are obligated to do is to enforce those rights. That's not commandeering. That's preemption. And which happens all the time. I mean, it, oh, I it is all the time that states are asked to to take into consideration factors like these. Yeah. And the, the, the Constitution doesn't even require there to be federal courts to enforce federal rights. <laughs> right? Congress never even had to create those. State courts have to enforce federal rights. So, yeah. But they don't care about that. And so there are some provisions that... You know, I'm not going to name them. Probably the one that would hurt the most is the active efforts requirement. This is the requirement that states that a state court must find that the agency performed active efforts to prevent the breakup of the family. Most states, Texas certainly doesn't do that. They don't do shit uh, to prevent the breakup of families. So they're supposed to actually try and do some of this stuff. And, you know, that's the big one. That's the, the most costliest one in terms of time and resources that states have. It yeah. would hurt a lot. It's something that every child in the country, every family in the child in the, in the, in the country should have in order to prevent the breakup. Mm-hmm. The reason that Indians have it is, again, the constitutional structure and the federal tribal relationship. That's, yeah. that's why that is, exists for Indians and not other ethnicities or other groups. And, but it should apply to everybody. That's why that. Tribes keep telling me the KC family programs keeps telling everybody ICWA is the gold standard. And that's primarily the main reason because everybody should have these benefits, but that's probably the one they'll get rid of 
Yeah. I mean, that's the one they could say, well, we're going to, we're going to throw a bone to the crazies on the right. That's kind of what the way down below and the, the panel decision of the fifth circuit long ago, there was a partial dissent and it was on some of the provisions that one of the judges thought commandeered the states. And I think if they invoke that, that's a, that's something that would hurt, but it can be remedied. You know, mm. Congress could pass a law tying compliance with those provisions to federal funding, which they sort of already kind of do, but not really. And yeah. um, that would be helpful. The states could just do it on their own as well. You know, yeah. like I said, we have 23 states that signed on an amicus brief. 10 states have already adopted ICLA. More and more could do that. We're waiting to see what Congress looks like in the short term. And it is a situation where, as you mentioned, Congress could step in and fix probably next summer when we get this decision. What are the politics like on on issues? You know, I know that at the court, it has not always been true that all of the liberal justices are good on issues of Indian law. All of the conservatives are bad. It, it's really blurred the lines that we typically look to, to, to use as shortcuts. What does that look like in terms of the prospect of having Congress step in and, and create a fix here for the short term? I, I think it's pretty good. You know, the Congress has adopted some laws in the last 10 years that I never imagined when I started practicing they ever would. So you know, the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Acts have expanded tribal jurisdiction over non-Indians in criminal cases. Again, they use the phrase non-Indian, so that all goes away, I suppose, right. if they strike right. parts of ICWA down. But Congress is, is you know, everybody is a law and order legislature. So I think that, that tribes have been able to get some, some leeway in the federal legislature by, you know, invoking that sort of principle. Now, of the 10 states that have adopted ICWA, you know, about, oh, roughly half of them are red, solid red states. Yeah. You know, Michigan's legislature flipped for the first time ever, but we adopted the Michigan Indian Family Preservation Act at a time when the governor and the legislature was dominated by a Republican Party, and it wasn't even a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my colleague at, my former colleague at Michigan State, Kate Fort, pointed out just the other day that Wyoming reached out to her and said, hey, we're thinking about adopting ICWA. I can't think of a more red state other than <laughs> <Yeah>. Oklahoma than <laughs> Wyoming. Yeah. So it as a good policy, it ICWA is a real thing. Yeah. And you know, the if you keep out the idiots at the top of the food chain of any state government, and that's why this case is in the Supreme Court. If you keep those people away from ICWA, then everybody wants ICWA. Yeah. Everybody wants it. Yeah. So I have some considerable hope that that would be the case. Now, again, if SCOTUS decides that suddenly Indian law is racist, um, none of that matters. Yeah. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. I I know that it has been the fear of so many folks who have been watching this case kind of trickle through the lower courts. It's been a slow process to get to the Supreme Court. And I think everybody was holding their breath, hoping, okay, let's find a way to not get them to take this case up. Unfortunately, I think that it hit at a time this term, we're seeing a number of cases where the court seems certain members of the court seem very eager to look at the quote unquote issue of reverse discrimination of discrimination against white citizens. And and the timing is terrible to to have this come up at the same time, because it's not a racial issue. But some some folks on the court seem eager to make it one. Does that sound right to you? Absolutely. You know, 
Justice Leto asking a question about blood quantum, which yeah. sound, uh, that really was invoking Elizabeth Warren yeah. during the affirmative action cases is, is classic example. You know, it's sort of like what the bright, shiny thing is in front of you at the moment that you're, you know, hearing a case. We've seen, I've seen this before in other uh, Indian law Supreme Court cases when they, they know they have an Indian law case coming up and it's sort of on their minds and they ask those questions in other cases. Mm-hmm. And it's really frustrating. You know, we want them to compartmentalize these things, but it doesn't seem like they can, you know, and somewhat related is, you know, and I've, I've said this before, the federal government, the office of solicitor generally, they argue these cases too. They're, it's, I feel like they're arguing one big giant case all year mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. And this, they're always in every single one of these cases and they're still arguing, affirm- they were arguing the affirmative action case tangentially in our case. We're also arguing the next Indian law case, which was just granted about, you know, the duty of protection and the government's on the other side in that case. So they're so conflicted. I yeah. mean, the, the Department of Justice is ridiculously conflicted. No other attorney in the country could take both of those cases, but they are. And yeah. they're, they're elevating one principle over others in order to, to lose this case in a certain way or to win it in a certain way so they can win another case they care about more than anything mm-hmm. else. It's deeply frustrating. Since you tee it up, could we get a brief description of what the next case is? What what it lo- looks like the court is going to be turning to after they decide in Burkina? Yeah, they 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 granted a case called Department of the Interior versus Navajo Nation, and the case is Navajo Nation. Navajo's water rights have never been adjudicated, and you know the Colorado River, you know it's all been the very the, the six or eight states that have an attachment to it, and the federal government and all the property owners and everybody has an interest in the water rights and Navajo uh, smartly in some respects way back in the day never let the United States litigate their water rights for them because the United States would back in those days would have sold them out sold them down the river so to speak yeah but they're still out there and pending and people at Navajo don't have any water I mean it's awful and it it became such a an acute issue during COVID people couldn't wash their hands Mm-hmm. And at a time that people were getting sick left and right, it was just unbelievably bad. And the water that do get is, you know, salinated, it's polluted. There's, there's not enough of it. And so they sued the United States saying, we got, we signed a treaty with you, a bunch of them saying, you provide a homeland for us. We don't have water. There's treaty rights cases out there and other parts of the country saying that the purpose of the reservation includes a homeland right, includes water rights. And Navajo just wants the United States to guarantee that. So really what they're doing is they're asking the U.S. to comply with their duty of protection to the Mm -hmm. tribe. Mm -hmm. And they won in the Ninth Circuit. It's such an open and shut case. This is a case that the Department of Justice has been waiting for a long long time. They want the Supreme Court to opine on whether the duty of protection against the U.S. is enforceable. And they're going to use this case to gut the duty of protection. And... So during oral argument in Brackeen, it appeared to me that when the government was talking about the duty of protection, they were only only talking about half of the duty of protection, the half of the duty of protection where Congress actually has acted, not the part where Congress hasn't done anything yet. And that's so horribly frustrating to me. And, you know, I I hate to see that. But that's that's the next case. It's going to be it's going to be ugly. 
Yeah. Well, I want to wrap up with a question that we like to ask our guests of where folks can either take action, um, if this is something that that folks can get involved in or learn more. And we've already mentioned Rebecca Nagel's amazing work. We will be sure to include a link to both the podcast and the article you referenced in the show notes. But anything else you want to uplift or or call out that folks can get involved with? Well, I mean, if you have lawyers on the you know lawyers on the call. I would imagine, imagine you do. There's a huge need for representation, pro bono representation of, of Indian parents. My wife and I, went on a single wrote uh, paper just published in the Michigan Law Review called Lawyering the Indian Child Welfare Act. And the reason that ICWA is targeted by the other side, so to speak, is that there's no money in ICWA. When you litigate voting rights, civil rights, election, you know, stuff like that, environmental laws, you know, the... Plaintiff's attorneys can win uh, attorney's fees, and it helps keep nonprofit organizations going. Now, NARF just won a huge voting rights case that's going to like fund them for a year. So yeah. this is really important stuff, and there's nothing like that in ICWA. ICWA cases don't end. They are just ongoing tragedies, and um, so there's no money in it. Tribes can't afford to send appellate litigation counsel all over the country there's nobody to defend these cases. And if you want to help and you work for, you know, an organization like a law firm that has need for pro bono on hours, I mean, I get inundated with questions, you know, they could, is there anybody in Michigan or somewhere that could take this case? And I, you know, there's just hardly anybody to do it. So that's what I would say right off the bat is the easy one. And if you see that there's a, State legislature looking at a, you know, looking at ICWA and thinking about adopting it, you know, throw some weight behind that. It's yeah. critically important. Yeah. So. State legislatures will be coming back in most places in January um, if they are on recess. So pin this episode um, and make sure that you don't forget in a couple of months because it's really important. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. This has been incredibly informative and and we really appreciate you, you taking time because I know it's been a busy week. Thank you to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll be continuing to look at the oral arguments held before the court this term. So stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. If you are enjoying the show, help us bring it to more listeners by giving us a five-star review and recommending Broken Law to a friend. If you have ideas for future episodes, we really want to hear them. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interest it really serves, and whose it does not. 